The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 14 today. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we have just sung, you indeed are a great God. Uh, you are the, the, the everlasting God, the eternal God. Uh, before the earth was formed or the mountains were born from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Father, as we come to your word, we realize it is your word that we come to, an eternal word, an everlasting word. And Father, as we, we come to your, your word, we, we have to recognize it is above us, beyond us, and transcends us. Uh, and even though you've condescended to speak to us in human language that we can understand, uh, we, we recognize the greatness of the truth. Uh, contained in these words, uh, that these words are, and our inability to understand them apart from the work of your Spirit. So, Father, we pray now that you would send your Spirit to attend to the preaching of this word, uh, that it would be spoke truthfully, clearly, and accurately, Lord, uh, but so, to also attend to the listening to your word, that we would receive it in faith, that your Spirit would illuminate our understanding that your spirit would work in and through this word, Lord, to, uh, to transform us, to renew us, to cleanse us, Father. And so, Lord, we come asking now that through the preaching of your word, uh, you would do your work of salvation. You would do your work of transforming and sanctifying us, Lord. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, be here with us in our midst as we know you are and that you would be accomplishing your purposes to our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in verses 19 through 24 of John 14. So let's give attention to the reading of the word. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Well, we've come now to what will be our last message in our series on Union with Christ. But what lies before us today is an exceedingly rich passage that enters in, into the realm of the reciprocal nature of union with Christ, where there is a mutual responsiveness and act and effect. That's simply the definition of reciprocity, a mutual responsiveness and act and effect. When God sets his love upon the sinner in eternity past according to the kind intention of his will, and then in the fullness of time sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to earn righteousness and be the atoning sacrifice for the sinner, and then sends forth his spirit to regenerate the sinner in the new birth, applying all that the work of Christ has accomplished, it has an effect on the sinner. The sinner will, in fact, reciprocate 
in act and effect to what God has done and in this ongoing eternal union with Christ, there will be an ongoing reciprocation between the Christian and the Trinity. That's what this text is teaching us. And brothers and sisters, i got to tell you, I found this to be an exceedingly difficult text. Now our context here is the upper room discourse. Jesus is hours away from his death. Jesus has told the disciples he is leaving. That's how he opened this chapter in 14.1. He was leaving to go to the Father. And he is now comforting them with assurances that he goes to the Father to prepare a place for them, that in his absence he will send his Spirit to come alongside them, and that he will eventually return to them. And these are are meant to be words of assurances to the disciples. But we need to personalize this a little bit, because when we come to John 17.20, Jesus extends these truths to all that believe in Christ through their witness as well. That's all of us. And so Christ is assuring his disciples and us that these truths will equip us for life in ministry during this time that Christ is seated in heaven with God, ruling and reigning over his kingdom. He is assuring us that we are not alone. He is assuring us that he is with us. He is assuring us that he is working in us to equip us to do greater works than he did. He is assuring us that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be with us forevermore. He promises us that the Spirit of truth will illuminate these things to our understanding, will bring life to us, and will mediate the presence of the Father and the Son with us, and will bring to us the full love of God in the experimental knowledge of fullness of life, fullness of joy, fullness of comfort, and peace that passes understanding. So we're going to consider the reciprocity of union with Christ under three headings. Life lodging, and love. And to stick with my L alliteration, lodging is standing for the abiding presence of the Father and Son with us. So first, reciprocity of life in verse 19. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me, because I live, you shall live also. He begins with this phrase, yet a little while. This phrase is used five times in the Gospel of John. Each time it is referring to Jesus leaving and going to the Father via his death, resurrection, and ascension. And what it's looking at is the time that remains between the moment the words are spoken and when he will go to the cross. And so each time Jesus uses this, that time is shrinking. In fact, of the five uses, Three are in the upper room discourse. This is the second of the three. This is the next to the last time Jesus will use this phrase. So there's this building sense of urgency lent to the message by these words. The time of Jesus' death grows closer and closer. And now with his death only hours away, Jesus speaks words of comfort to his disciples and to us, promising life. He tells them the world will behold him no more. He will die. The world will not see him again once he goes into the tomb. Scriptures affirm this for us. Acts 10, 40 and 41 tell us that in the resurrection, Jesus appeared only to his disciples. The world never saw him again after that. But he says to them, but you will behold me. They will see him in the resurrection. 
But brothers and sisters, what we have to understand is this does not exhaust the full meaning of what it means that they will behold Jesus. Yes, they will see him with their very own eyes in the resurrection. But when he says in context here, I live, it has the sense of something more than just being resurrected, but that they will continually behold Jesus as the living Savior. When we look at our broader context here in verses 16 through 18, where Jesus promises to send to them the Spirit who will abide in them and dwell in them, and then down in verse 26 where He says that the Spirit uh, will come and will teach them all things and will bring to their remembrance all that I said to you, what we have in view here is that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they will continue to behold Jesus with the eyes of faith. You see, they will not only see Him and continue to see Him, but because He lives, they live also. And again, when Jesus says, because I live, He's not referring specifically or particularly to the resurrection, but to his continuing life. Yes, it does include the resurrection, but what I want you to understand is, when he says, because I live, he's not merely saying, hey guys, I'm going to be resurrected. There's much more in view here. We have to understand, Jesus is life. John 1.4, in him was life. John 5.26, just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus is the author of life. He has self-contained life within Him, in His deity, as the second person of the Trinity. He, He did not receive life from outside Himself, but has life because He is life. Therefore, He cannot die. Yet in His perfect humanity, He could die. And in His perfect humanity as our mediator and sin bearer, He was put to death for our sins. However, the righteous one who knew no sin can't be held by death the curse of sin. Jesus, whose perfect humanity is bound together with the second person of the Trinity in the hypostatic union, breaks the bonds of death and continues to live in the resurrection as the first fruits of the resurrection, setting the pattern for our resurrection. And once we are united to Him who has overcome death and continues to live because He cannot die, We too have life now that never dies. Yes, these physical bodies of ours will one day die. But remember, death could not hold Jesus, and neither can it hold those united to Jesus. These self-same physical bodies will be resurrected, glorious bodies, and we will live forever Because he lives. For one in union with Christ to lose eternal life, Christ would have to die eternally first. The God-man would have to become subject to death again and remain subject to death. An impossibility, the thought of which is just profoundly absurd. The union of believers with Christ gives us the same spiritual life possessed by Christ in His human nature. Because He lives, we live also. But there's also a reciprocity of lodging or abiding we see in verse 20. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I and you. And we have here really the second time reference he he uses. He says, in that day. 
Okay, so what day is that day? Uh, we see this word used mainly, not exclusively, but mainly to refer to either Christ's first advent or his second advent. Well, we're after the first advent, so that takes that off the table. But again, what's in view here? Is he simply speaking of the second coming of Christ? Uh, is he perhaps speaking of the resurrection as he just was a moment ago? Or could he be speaking about Pentecost? Well, let's take a look at what he says here about in that day. He says, in that day you shall know. So in that day, they're going to know that he is in the Father, and that we are in him, and he is in us. Now, we have to recognize that the disciples didn't understand Christ's unity with the Father. Just look over to verses 8 and 9 in chapter 14. We see an instance of that. See, he's told them before that he and the Father are one, back in John 10. Okay, but Philip says to him here, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? However, when the Spirit of truth comes, teaching them and bringing to, to their remembrance all that he had said, remember, verse 26 promises us this, then they will know. So the immediate referent here is to the coming of the Holy Spirit in verses 16 through 18, where we receive the surety of our salvation and begin to experience the benefits of union with Christ by knowing him now. But again, this doesn't exhaust the full, the full meaning of this. We have to remember, the first coming of Christ is inextricably connected to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's inextricably connected to the day of Pentecost. It's inextricably connected to his second coming. The first advent set in, set in motion a chain of events that would indeed come to pass. And that is really the full view of what we have here. Because even though it's at Pentecost that he sent his spirit by which his disciples would, would, would know him and would, uh, uh, know him in the, in this very uh, intimate and experiential way, we also have to recognize that the scriptures teach us this is a partial knowledge. The knowledge of Christ we have now is a partial knowledge. First, uh, First Corinthians 13. We know now dimly as looking in a mirror. The scriptures tell us that through the means of grace, we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will grow in this knowledge of Christ. And we will become, and we will know him more fully by faith. However, ultimately, this does indeed refer to his second coming when we will know him as fully as a creature can possibly know his creator, when we are present with him, no longer beholding him by faith, but face to face. Turn over a couple pages to John 17, 20. I want you to see verses 20 through 23 here, because Jesus, as our high priest, prays for this very thing on our behalf. In verse 20, he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So this doesn't, he's not just asking for his 12 disciples here. He's asking for all of us, because we're the ones who believe through his word. And what is it he's asking for us? That we may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me, in the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did love them even as you did love me. He's asking that the church would have a unity that is like or corresponds to the unity within the Godhead. That's, what, that's what's at stake here. That's what he's talking about in this abiding presence with us. The indwelling spirit of the Father and the Son is the one perfect bond of union. 
The Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. That's perfect unity. Absolutely perfect unity. And it's the source of our unity. It's, it's, it's from that unity that believers are brought into a living unity with the Father and the Son and with one another. This is the basis of our union together and our unity. This is an intimate and eternal union. It's the foundation and source of eternal life. But it's also the guarantee of our perseverance in the faith. This present unity we now have through the indwelling Spirit of Christ brings us the glory of acceptance with God. Brings us Christ-likeness. It's in union with Christ that we're transformed and made into the image of Christ. And it's in union with Christ that we have every blessing of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this, this reciprocal abiding, this is a great mystery. But it's a wonderful truth. And then he goes on in verse 21 to this reciprocity of love. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, the opening words here, when you really look at closely at what he's saying, they're a little different. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Notice it's not just he who has my commandments. Or as he even said earlier in this very chapter, he who keeps my commandments. It's he who has my commandments and keeps them. You see, Israel had the commandments written on stone, but they didn't keep them. And we have the commands of Christ in two ways. And and if we look closely, we can see this illustrated for us very well in the Great Commission. Okay, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He says, we are to go forth and make disciples. Okay, so, so we go forth, we preach the gospel. Sinners are saved through the preaching of the gospel. They are born again. They receive the new birth. Well, what happens in the new birth? In the new birth, we have our hearts of stone removed. We are given hearts of flesh. And those hearts of flesh now have his commandments written upon them. That's the promise of the new covenant. He will give us a new heart, and His law will be written upon our heart. That's the first way in which we possess His commandments. But then in the Great Commission, those disciples are to be brought into the church. It says we're to baptize them. Baptism is the right of entrance into the universal church. It's administered by the local church. So it stands for bringing these new believers into the church. Well, for what purpose? And they were to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And when we teach disciples of Jesus His commandments, that's now the second way in which we possess His commandments and have His commandments. And so He tells us here, those who have His commandments in these two ways and keeps them, He it is who loves me. And he says, he it is that loves me. This is an emphatic statement. What he's saying is this one and only this one is the one who loves me. Catch the full import of what he's saying. He who has my commandments and keeps them, this one who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me and he is the only one who loves me. So we have to ask the question, what comes first here? Keeping the commandments or loving Christ? You know, the age-old dilemma here, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? You do realize the world is truly puzzled over that conundrum, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, all you got to do is read Genesis 121. He created every winged bird according to its kind. The chicken came first, okay? So let's follow the same pattern here, and let's go to the Scriptures to answer this question. 
And again, here's where things like the analogy of scriptures, the analogy of the faith come in handy. Scripture answers this for us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. That's right, 1 John 4.10. God's love for us is what comes first. Our love comes out of that. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Because of his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. He first loved us in eternity past according to the kind intention of his will. He regenerated us then in, in, in time and gave us a new heart and wrote his law upon it. And now, now, as transformed sinners, we love God with transformed affections and transformed desires to do his will by keeping his commandments and walking in the good works he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Remember, we covered all that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But notice the present tense here. All of this is in the present tense. He who has my commandments now and keeps my commandments now. He it is who loves me now. This is all present tense. We do this now. And brothers and sisters, here's what we have to understand, what we're going to see unfold in the rest of this text. True love for Christ is not mere affection or admiration. You will hear many people talk so lovingly and adoringly of their love for the Savior while they live like the world. Jesus has a different definition of love of God. Now, yes, it is a love that is full of affection. But it is so much more than that. We must remember that union with Christ unites us to him as our redeemer. That should, that, what that should bring forth from us is that should stir our hearts up to love him affectionately to the uttermost. But union with Christ also unites us to him as our Lord. And that should bring forth from us a love of loyal devotion. So we love him with a great affection, and we love him with a willing obedience or an evangelical obedience. You see, our affection for Christ comes from the realization of the greatness of his person and work on our behalf. And that's what fuels the fire of our love for him. Do you ever feel your love for Christ waning and growing weak? If you say no, you're a liar. Okay? That's the the weakness of our humanity. Do you understand why we need to have the gospel preached to us every week? Because that's what reminds us of the greatness of our Savior. That's what reminds us of of His perfect, unending love for us. And it inflames our love. It strengthens our love. It builds our love. And what comes out of love for Christ? The power to obey. The motivation to obey. The desire to obey. The willingness to obey. See, we cannot separate love of God, affectionate love of God, from the the love of devotion to God. They go together. And notice what Christ goes on to say here. He says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Note the tense change. Future tense. So the one who present tense has his commandments and keeps them, he future tense will love. Now if you're reading your Bible carefully, you have to go, wait a minute, this sounds like a contradiction. What comes first? Does God love me first and then I obey? Or do all I obey and then God loves me and his love for me is conditional upon my obedience? Which is it? Does God love me before I obey or does God love me after I obey? Well, he loves you both times, but in different ways. 
You see, as we've already stated, God's love must precede our love, yet it also follows our love, and here's the important part, in the sense that through our obedience, we have a greater sense of the Father's love in a greater assurance of our salvation and the closeness of God. Brothers and sisters, let me be clear on something here. God's love for us never changes. It doesn't increase. It doesn't decrease because it's perfect. God's love for us doesn't change. But our sense of it does. And that's based on our obedience. Romans 18, 8, 16 says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God, giving us assurance of our salvation. Okay, that's that work of the Spirit in us. Bearing witness with our spirit. Assuring us that we're children of God. That's how we have this assurance. That's how we have this knowledge of the love of God. But you got to look up a couple verses and look at verse 13 for the context in which it says this. Because in verse 13, the context is putting to death the deeds of the flesh and living for God. The context is, is evangelical obedience. And when, and when we obey God, the indwelling Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we truly are a child of God. Simple truth is this. God blesses obedience with special comforts of His felt presence. And it is through this that we experientially enjoy a close walk with God. Psalm 25.14 says that those who fear God, He makes to know His covenant. Those who fear God, another way of saying those who obey Him, those who keep His commandments. See what it says here. He makes to know His covenant. He works in us that we know intimately, experientially, the promises of His covenant. What's the, what's the ultimate covenant promise? I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. It's His abiding presence with His people. Those who keep my commandments, He is telling us, I will make known to you my abiding presence with you. J.C. Ryle says, while good works cannot justify. And again, we have to be clear on that. Whenever we preach these promises of God, we've got to be clear on these things. While good works cannot justify us, they are not to be despised. If we want to be eminently happy, we must strive to be eminently holy. So Christian, I have this question for you. Do you have no joy? Do you have no joy? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I have to ask, are you striving to live a life of continual obedience to Christ? Now, not perfect obedience, that doesn't come in this life. That's what awaits us in the next life. Do you ever think about resurrection and glory? Purified souls, resurrected, glorified bodies, where we will have then been made so that we can't sin. But that's not in this life. On this life, what is in view here is an ongoing pattern of consistent effort to keep His commandments. And if that's not a description of our walk, this is why we find ourselves joyless. But again, I have to emphasize, the answer is not get out there and work. The answer is not, oh, you better get out there and keep the commandments if you want to be joyful. Come on, get out there, get to work. Brothers and sisters, if I'm not, if I'm not striving to keep the commandments of God, the first thing I need to do is repent. I need to repent and turn to Christ. And whether this is a repentance of faith that brings regeneration or the repentance of faith that returns to our Lord, our greatest need is to repent and turn to Christ because it is only from 
Him that we receive the grace to obey. It starts with Christ in the gospel. And when we obey, God reciprocates our love with blessings that far outweigh any work we do. In return for our imperfect obedience, the perfect love of the Father and the Son that is ours in Christ is made known to us through their disclosures to us of their abiding presence with us. You see, that's what Jesus says in verse 21 when he says, and and I will disclose myself to him. Ryle says, he shall feel and know in his own heart comforts and joys that wicked men and inconsistent professors know nothing of. Unbelievers don't know this. Those walking in inconsistent life don't experience that because they're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit in His work of revealing it to us. You know, this this is the proverbial, shoot yourself in the foot. But Ryle goes on to say, those who follow Christ most closely and obediently will always follow Him most closely comfortably and feel most of his inward presence it is one thing as saint john says to know christ another to know that we know him you catch the differentiation there it is one thing to know christ and oh what a glorious thing to know christ right that's our only hope is to know christ but he says it's another to know that we know him Which begs the question, how do we know we know Christ? Okay, let's learn our lesson from the chicken and the egg here. Let's go to the Scriptures. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. What is it? Mountaintop epiphanies? No. If we keep His commandments. So we come now to Judas' question. He says, Lord, What then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, again, we have to ask, what was Judas thinking? Well, I think it's pretty clear what was Judas thinking, giving giving the the immediate context and then even the further context. He was thinking what every Jew was thinking. When the Messiah came, he was coming to liberate Israel from its enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. So now when Jesus says, I'm going to disclose myself to you, my followers, but not the world, he has an immediate disconnect because that's not what he's expecting. And we we see this furthermore in Acts 1. Turn over to Acts 1. To me, this was just an amazing passage when I put it all together. Acts 1.6, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And in Acts 1.6, we have the last thing his disciples said to him. Now I want you to imagine, you spent three years with Jesus. He's about to ascend into heaven. You're not going to see him again until you go there to be with him. Of all the things you could ask him, what would you ask him? Well, here's what they asked him. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? That wouldn't have made my top ten. Okay? But it shows what they were thinking. This was their expectation. They did not understand that what Jesus meant by disclosing or manifesting himself to them is, that, is what we just spoke of here, this disclosure of himself to those who love him by the work of the Spirit in them. But you see, Jesus knows they're not ready to receive this truth yet until the Spirit of truth comes to them, illuminating their understanding of all that He has taught them. So He simply repeats what He said in verse 21 and verse 23. But as is helpful sometimes, He says the same truth, He just says it in a little different way to help broaden the understanding. He says, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So first of all, he broadens it. He broadens it from keeping his commandments to keeping his word. And there is a difference here. Okay? Commandments are specific written commandments or precepts. So the Ten Commandments. Okay? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Those are commandments. But he broadens it now to all that he spoke and taught. When he, when he broadens it from uh, uh, commandments to his word. Another change is, he now speaks in the singular instead of in the plural. In verse 21, he was speaking in the plural. In verse 23, he's speaking in the singular, showing this is directed at each and every individual follower of Jesus, emphasizing the personal responsibility of our salvation, or said another way, our personal responsibility regarding the reciprocal action of union with Christ. Because remember, brothers and sisters, when you were saved, you were united to Christ, and that will have an effect on you. And then to make it clear, Jesus even reverses the order in which he says it. Up in 21, it was, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one that loves me. Here in verse 23, it's, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And, and actually, I think this is helpful because it helps us to see with greater clarity that obedience flows from love to Christ. Obedience is not the, the, the grounds of our love for Christ or the grounds of his love for us, but it's the manifestation or the evidence of it. So it is helpful, this clarification that he gives us. But again, this begs a necessary question we need to ask ourselves. And it's the same question that Jesus asked Peter in John 21.16. Remember, there's this emphasis on our personal responsibility now as one united to Christ. And the question that Jesus asked Peter was simply this. Do you love me? Do you love Christ? Not with the love that the world has. Do you love Christ with the love that he has described here? A love that is full of affection for him, for what he has done in saving you, for the great salvation he has brought for you, but also a love of loyal devotion, where his will is now your will. His desire is your desire where there's no greater thing for you than to walk according to his word. You see, we, we really kind of need to put ourselves in Peter's sandals here for a minute. Imagine yourself in Peter's position in John 21, 16, when Jesus looked him in the eye, looked him right in the eye, and asked the question, Do you love me? And now before you even think the answer in your head, Recognize one thing. The person speaking to you is a person who knows your heart perfectly. You're not going to fool him, and you can't avoid this question. Do you love Jesus? Because what he's described for us here is, the effect of loving Jesus is, you will keep his word. And notice how he says it here. Even this is reassuring. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will keep my word. What we have to see behind that is the power of the gospel promises of his grace to us that will enable us to walk in that word. You will keep his word by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then the promise. He says, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Okay. Jesus is even expanding upon the promise here. Look up at verse 18. What does he say? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What does he say in verse 21? I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 
Now in verse 23, what does he say? We will come to him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. Now it's the Father and the Son coming to abide eternally. When the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, so too does the Son and the Father. As the Father is in the Son, and the Son in the Father, when the Son indwells us by His Spirit, so too does the Father. The presence of the Father and the Son is experienced. Do you realize that's what's being promised here in this reciprocal abiding and in this reciprocal love? It is experiential knowledge of the abiding presence of your Creator. But you might ask, well, how do I experience this? Because there's much error out there regarding this. We experience this through conviction of sin. We experience this through repentance, through comfort, through assurance of salvation, through hatred of sin, through love of God's Word, through love of God's people. The peace that passes understanding. The joy of Christ. This is how Father and Son manifest themselves to us. It's not in visions or revelations. It's not in some second blessing of the Spirit. That's not how they manifest themselves to us. The Father and Son will make their continual dwelling in the heart of the believer. This is experimental faith that is known only by those united to Christ. Father and Son condescend to dwell with the sinner. Let that sink in for a minute. That's both the greatest privilege and the greatest mystery at the same time. The Holy Spirit whom Christ had sent forth from the Father, Christ who is in the Father, and the Father who is in Christ, all will give the believer dispensations of grace that make their abiding presence known to us when we obey Him. 1 John 3.24 We know by the Spirit that He abides in us. One Puritan commentator made this statement. He says, When we go to heaven, we live with God in His home. Wasn't that Jesus' promise in John 14.1? I go to my Father's house to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and gather you and take you there. Okay, so when we go to heaven, we live with God in his house. Now in this life, God comes to live with us in ours. And he ties it up here in verse 24. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. He is here emphasizing that obedience is a product of love. For him, it's not the basis, it's not the foundation, it's the product, the manifestation, or the evidence of it. And he states it now in the negative. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And these words they don't keep are the fathers who sent him to do his work of salvation. And that's important for us to understand because those who reject Christ's word reject God because it's God's word. And John 12.48 equates rejecting Jesus with not receiving His Word, and all who do so will be judged on the last day. Where there is life, there is love for Christ, and there will be obedience to Christ. And where there is no life, there is no love for Christ, and no obedience to Christ. And so we have to come to this conclusion. The only true test of love for Christ. The only true test of union with Christ. The only true test of salvation. Say it however you want. They all mean the same thing. Is keeping His Word. So do not deceive yourself, friend. You cannot say you love God if you do not consistently strive to obey Him as your way of life. Brothers and sisters, this union with Christ we've looked at over these half dozen messages or so, it's a great mystery. It's a profound mystery. 
God acts upon us. And we will be affected so that we reciprocate in particular ways. And that's His promise. He says, when I act on you, you will. You will. And we will because He provides the grace for it. We walk in the life that has been given to us. We experience the abiding presence of the Trinity. And we love God by keeping Christ's Word. And God makes His presence in us known to us. Our great Savior says just a few verses down in chapter 14, verse 27, He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then in, and in His high priestly prayer, in John 17, 13, Jesus, in praying to the Father, He says, that He spoke these very words to us for a reason. He told us all of this stuff before He went to the cross for a reason. What was it? So that His joy would be made full in us. Brethren, in union with Christ, we have the peace that passes understanding, and we have the joy of Christ. It is ours, but it is ours only and all in union with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we do indeed give thanks to you for your great love for us that was rich in mercy, uh, that, that brought forth a great salvation. Uh, and Lord, we confess it is, it is great, it is profound, it is mysterious. You have revealed it to us in ways that we can understand, and, and yet, Lord, it is just so great, it, it overwhelms us. So, Father, we pray. We pray that your Spirit would indeed do His work in us, just as you have promised, uh, bringing to mind all that you have taught, giving us an understanding of your Word, Lord, uh, revealing to us, manifesting to us, disclosing to us, your abiding presence with us, your abiding love for us, and the life that we have in Christ. Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us in us. We pray, Lord, that you would be working these things out in us to your glory and our eternal good. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.